0: Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go.
1: For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless. But we will use words to limit ourselves.
0: When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves. And that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders, and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers, and seekers. Here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise.
1: Lucy Rain Simpson is the executive director of the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center, where she has worked for many years to help restore sovereignty and safeguard Native women and children. We talk about all the damage caused by glaring legal loopholes between the federal and tribal governments and we also talk about why crimes against women are particularly corrosive in society. She shares ways that we can begin to break the cycle of violence, what justice would look like, and how we get to a place where native women feel protected.
2: There's so many issues impacting Indian country, you know, our environmental resources, you know, education, poverty, all of those kinds of things, economic development. And for us, it's really if we can come back to a place where women are sacred, then that gives us the foundation for building everything else up. And so we approach um, that as, as the foundation for all of the work that we need to do in Native communities.
1: Okay, let's get to my chat with Lucy Rain Simpson. I can only imagine sort of how busy you are. So thank you for making time to talk to me.
2: Yeah, well, thank you for um, inviting me. It's really exciting. This is my first podcast.
1: Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, welcome to my favorite format ever. I love, well, hopefully this will be the first of many podcasts that you do, particularly because it feels like people are suddenly awake to what is happening and what has been happening to Native Americans and First Nations people. And that I know that you guys have been making a lot of noise for a long time, and it seems like no one has really been paying attention enough until recently. So, and maybe people still aren't paying enough attention.
2: It's a process. And so we're, we know nothing's going to happen overnight, and that's frustrating, but it just requires Ongoing persistence and resilience. And as Native people, we're good at that.
1: Yeah, seriously. And I know that you specifically, you know, sort of what I'm sure will cover a range of issues, and that you're sort of specifically focused on women, right? And children, murdered and missing women and children, sort of what's happened to women, Native women specifically on reservations and sort of the chasm, the gap between tribal and federal law, right? Because I think most people don't understand. They might have a, a vague awareness or sometimes an inability to like look at sort of how this nation as America was settled And what happened, you know, the genocide of Native people to make that happen. But then I think people just don't understand or have no real visibility into how things work. And one of the statistics that's staggering, and I know that I'd be curious to hear you talk about some of the data, because I know that the data can be hard to come by. But anyway, you slice it, it looks very damning. But one in three Native women will be raped in their lifetime. Uh And that... Is it 90% of perpetrators are non-Native?
2: It's around 90-something percent of sexual violence, including rape against Native women, is committed by non-Indians.
1: Which it's, is it's a staggering,
2: staggering. amount. Staggering,
1: yes. Staggering. There's this, not a loophole even, but can you sort of take us back? Because tribal law and sovereignty, treaties, et cetera, essentially... It, it prohibits or precludes Native Americans from bringing white people to justice if something happens on reservation land, right? Like that's the the huge glaring right. loophole.
2: Right. So it's the federal government has implemented all of these laws that govern American Indian tribes in the United States. And one of those denies tribes the ability to prosecute non-Indians who commit crimes against Indians on Indian land. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have all of these different jurisdictions that, and, and the sort of maze of trying to figure out which jurisdiction has authority over which situation. So, a tribe has authority to prosecute tribal members when they commit a crime against other Indians. But when there's a crime against a a non-Indian against an Indian, then the tribe is denied the ability to prosecute that crime. And for the most part, that falls within the federal jurisdiction. But if it is a misdemeanor crime, The federal government prioritizes felonies and so there's this whole level of crimes that end up for the most part getting just dropped fall fall into the gaps and there's no action whatsoever domestic violence used to fall within that it was considered a misdemeanor but with the violence against women act in 2013 it was reauthorized to provide to recognize tribes inherent sovereign authority to be able to prosecute non-Indians in specific situations of domestic violence against an Indian person
0: on Mm -hmm. a reservation.
2: But if it, you know, if it's other misdemeanor crimes still fall within that sort of gap of no one prosecuting. And even if it is a crime that the federal government can prosecute, they have their priorities you know, and, and different administrations have different priorities so that, and and when we're talking about Indian country, we're usually talking about places where there are fewer federal prosecutors available for handling those cases. So they, you know, they, they take what they think is the most important, and oftentimes these other crimes just get, you know, no action is taken, and so there's this huge gap when it comes to justice in Indian country for specifically crimes against Native women. And there's a whole spectrum of that, you know, domestic violence, sexual assault, dating violence, trafficking, um, sex trafficking, and murder, which is at the you know the extreme end of that spectrum of
0: violence. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your
3: home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless high quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high-quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Good Weave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the US. To explore their rug collections, head to NordicKnots.com. Use promo code InnerCircle to get free rug samples.
0: Okay, let's get back to the conversation.
1: And in terms of the perpetrators, because I think, you know, most people hear this and they're just play into every single stereotype, right, uh, about Native Americans and are like, oh, that's not our problem, but these are man camps, these are fracking camps, these are crimes typically perpetrated by men who understand that there's just a certain amount of complacency around following up on crimes against Native women, correct? And that they're sort of exploiting the system. And why is it even called sex trafficking? Because it's essentially like sexual slavery, right? Like it's –
2: why is it – I, I don't know why they why they term it sex trafficking specifically. In in you know, in, and to some extent, it really is like a, a sex trafficking situation. Even you know, oftentimes it's these men that begin these romantic relationships with women, and oftentimes young girls, and sort of convince these girls and that they're loved and. Then through manipulation, it, it turns into sex trafficking, and that's sort of the the, the way that they they do it.
1: Mm-hmm. This the sort of slow entrapment, right? Yeah, I read because you don't have a book yet, but I cannot wait to read your book if when it and when it comes. That I was reading Sarah Deer's book, and she was sort of explaining the, how sort of the long history of of sort of tearing tribes apart and sort of luring young people to the cities and then within i can't remember the statistic but within 48 hours sometimes 24 hours gr- these girls are typically seized upon or put in sort of precarious positions and I, is it that they're lured also with sort of and maybe this is historic but that with sort of one-way to get money out of the reservation and then have no way of getting back
2: I'm sure that's a, a, a good amount of it, but I, you know, I also think it's it. It really is the entire history of colonization and its lasting impacts and trauma in Native communities that has led to, you know, situations where we have high rates of poverty, you know, high rates of drug and alcohol abuse from, you know, stemming from boarding schools and. So the, this history of colonization has resulted in, you know, this ongoing trauma that we're experiencing in our communities. That, that puts a lot of our young women and girls in these situations where they find themselves to be at higher risk. And so, you know, the, these methods that sex traffickers have you know, directly target high risk populations. I read a study, I've, I i do not remember where it was or, and it wasn't specific to native women and not necessarily specific to sex trafficking, but it was child molesters who, you know, would go places and look for the kids that were wearing, you know, that were wearing dirty clothes, maybe mismatched socks. And just this idea that the, the, if, if they're you know from a more uh, poverty stricken area, they're easier to manipulate and, and targeted for that purpose. And I think that that's a lot of what we see when it comes to the high rates of violence against Native women and girls is this purposeful targeting.
1: And you have the perfect storm of sort of federal mismanagement and complacency and destruction, obviously, and heartbreak at its core. And so where do these women turn and who's there to help, right? So you're right. So they're a void.
2: Right, exactly. And when, you know, we look at these federal policies that have caused so much damage in our communities, and on the flip side of that, we have this federal trust responsibility where the federal government is supposed to be, you know, meeting its treaty obligations and has a trust responsibility to provide certain resources, and the resources that are provided are generally you know, far less than what's needed at the community level. And so, like you said, it is this perfect storm where you add all of those together and we have this the situation in our communities—that's just heartbreaking, angering. But the reality is, you know, that that—that's the reality of of the lives that that we live—is dealing with that. And I think we all know someone that is, if, if we haven't experienced it ourselves, that's you know been on that spectrum of violence. And you know, and within the community where our administrative offices is, where I am right now in Lame Deer, Montana, we've had. So many Native women and Native men that have gone missing and murdered, and very few of them have have their families, very few of them have, have seen justice.
1: This is I think sort of a really important backstory. And Sarah Deer writes about this in her book, but she talks about sort of her tribal nation relied. Think for millennia on sacred oral traditions and ceremonies, both to establish and enforce legal standards. These laws were not written down. In fact, for many Native people, reducing laws to writing weakened their power by limiting accessibility to a few and losing the value of rhythm and intonation. And that Europeans completely failed to understand this, and sort of tried to get them to commit to writing what the laws were. But that historically, that rape was not, and I think she alludes to the fact that it was often met with banishment, but, the, but tribal nations, the reverence for mother and women was so strong that the rape, et cetera, wasn't re- really an issue. And right. that there right. wasn't really a precedent for even understanding it. And that it at its core is sort of the most foundationally disrupting and terrible thing that you could do to a tribal people in terms of tearing the culture apart.
2: Right. Well, first of all, I want to say Sarah Deer is a brilliant colleague. And one of the first women when I first joined the movement in doing this work was one of the first people that I met. And so, you know, I just want to give her a shout out because she's everyone amazing. Everyone
1: should, should read her book yes. until your book comes out and then they should read your book too.
2: Well, I have no plans for <laughs> a book yet, but yes, everyone should read her book. Yeah. And I think that that really is, you know, she hits the nail on the head. You know, our communities, women, have always formed the backbone of our communities, whether we're, you know, matrilineal, which I think most tribes are, but there are some tribes that are patrilineal. There's still this understanding of the important role that women played in our communities. And Northern Cheyenne people have a saying, and I think this sort of is, is something that would resonate with almost every tribe in the United States, is that a nation is not defeated until the hearts of its women are on the ground. And that was a, a primary tactic. If you want to break a nation down, you cause, you know, you, you purposefully try to make women no longer respected. And you know, for a lot of Native communities, you know, modesty was such an important part of that. And then when the colonists, you know, the army back in the 1800s, you know, were purposefully Using rape as a tactic of uh, genocide, really, you you tear the the foundations of of a community apart. Most of our tribes have our, our creation stories that are centered around the power of of women, and those stories sort of set the foundation for how we're supposed to supposed to treat each other, and a lot of the natural laws that you know as you mentioned that Sarah was talking about that formed the sort of foundation of laws for our communities. And when women are raped and treated in that manner, then it, it's sort of the, that foundational idea that as that women are sacred begins to fall apart. And then we see all kinds of other issues arising from that. And I think that's for Myself and for the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center and my other colleagues that work here and our board of directors, that's really our, our, our main philosophy is that that's the, the core. That's the bottom thing. There's so many issues impacting Indian country, you know our environmental resources, you know mm-hmm. education, poverty, all of those kinds of things, economic development. And for us, it's really, if we can come back to a place where women are sacred, then that gives us the foundation for building everything else up. And so we approach um, that as, as the foundation for all of the work that we need to do in Native communities.
1: I love that. And I think it makes so much sense, as you mentioned, sort of the creation myths, this idea of women as creators and the planet that, Absent that reverence, we're sort of unmoored, and and I think too, you know, rape and sexual assault being for so many women invisible crimes in some way, and soul murder, right? Like the psychic harm and the okay. feelings of unsafety, the feelings of yeah, lack of safety an inability to feel like you can protect your own children, your own daughters is. Right.
2: The shame that that creates, you know, also leads to this feel, this feeling of lack of community where you're, you know, there, there's this feeling that you can't talk about it. And so you're not getting that support and love and, and healing from, from your community. And, and it creates these rifts that we you know, we don't really realize are there until, you know, things just start falling apart around us. And so it it really is, you know, and, and I think domestic violence fits into that as well in terms of you know, that being something that was just not not traditional. And when it did happen, it was dealt with swiftly and it wasn't a shameful kind of thing where people hit it. It was something where when that happened, you know, it was brought out into the community and the community dealt with it. And, and I, I don't, you know... I haven't done enough historical research to really be able to back this statement up. But I think a lot of that, that sense of shame came from, you know, the the boarding school era where shame was sort of instilled into our people on so many different levels, even just when it came to speaking their language and practicing their ceremonies. And so that's sort of, you know, that it's created that trauma that is sort of being passed down from generation to generation without our, our knowledge, you know, that it's happening until we're, we're seeing all of these other issues and, and can sort of backtrack and, and be able to see really where, where it started.
0: Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb, This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation.
1: What percentage of Native Americans in the U.S. live on reservations at this point?
2: Oh gosh, I I don't know off the top of my head. I think there's a lot of Native people that still live on the reservations or live in communities close to their reservations in, in border towns or in, in cities that are maybe um, a couple hours away. But there's a large Native urban population population all over the place chicago los angeles yeah. seattle new york new york city so there's you know there there is a large urban native population and and that also you know creates issues when it comes to looking at issues of justice you know so often we we're, we're talking about the trust responsibility and 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 what the federal government is supposed to be doing for and in consultation with Native American tribes and tribal governments. And then, you know, we have tribal citizens who live off their reservations. And and this question comes of, you know, what kind of services are are then provided to them. And they still have that native, you know, specific tribal citizenship, but they happen to be living somewhere else. And and so we often see urban natives being sort of left out of the equation. And and that also creates a big problem.
1: What would be sort of the appropriate standard of justice if things sort of went according, appropriately, according to tribal law, with reverence for sort of the, the women and the tribe first? What would justice look like? Would it be excommunication? Would it be rehabilitation? I doubt I maybe is it incarceration? Like what, what would you what's the ultimate goal in terms of feeling like women are protected and there's this clear disincentivization to, you know, from man camps that there are real repercussions for these actions?
2: That's a complex question. And I don't think I have one answer that would sort of be the right answer that everyone would say, yeah, she's got it. You know, everyone has (laughs) their own opinions on what that, what that would look like. And a lot of that's going to depend on each specific tribe. You know, we all have our own creation stories. We all have our own traditions and ceremonies. And there are things that might be similar across many different tribal nations, but they're also very distinct. And so, you know, it would, it would depend on that tribal nation to be able to determine whether it would be, you know, what that might look like, whether it's, you know, floating people off is sort of what they talk about in terms of banishment or whether it would be, you know, depending on what the crime might be, you know, it could be rehabilitation, you know, in terms of, and it's also going to depend on, on, on who committed the crime. I think that, you know, when it comes to looking to reviving some of our traditional laws You know, that that might differ if it's a a tribal member that has Mm -hmm. ties in the community versus, you know, someone else that that is is not necessarily from that community. And so it it becomes a, a very complex issue. And I think that, you know, that that's one of the things that tribal nations need to be thinking about of what they would want that to look like for themselves but i don't think there's one one answer and and i feel like a lot of times you know, we don't have the those people who are doing work on the, on a daily basis in with regard to violence against native women and children who are the direct service providers oftentimes mm-hmm. they're in the best position to be able to really know what seems to work and what doesn't but they're providing direct services, you know, they don't have the luxury of being able to really sort of sit down and, and do a lot of this kind of thinking because they're just, you know, it's, it's responding to, you know, nonstop needs of, for advocacy from, you know, survivors who are, who are asking for help. And so, you know, it becomes, again, it's, it's another part of that issue with regard to resources that Mm -hmm. a community has to be able to deal with this issue. I think that, Ultimately, though, when you said, I, I think part of your question was, what is the ultimate goal? And I think the, the ultimate goal is to really get to a point of prevention. Right mm-hmm. now, we are in this place where it really is response. You know, the majority of the conversation specifically around missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls is around the response to a missing woman, you know what? What? How can we improve the federal response? How can we pr- improve the local response? Well, ultimately, we want to get to the point where, you know, we're not having to respond. We're, we're, you know, we're implementing more programs and projects that can help to prevent that. And I think a big part of that is finding ways to connect the services that are being provided to our our cultural traditions and our ceremonies and 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 being able to do as much as we can to revitalize those and and make sure that they're included you know it's it's there's this you know federal funds which el- the majority of tribes are heavily reliant on federal funds for their day-to-day programming needs and it's kind of hard to mix those those kinds of activities that really need to happen into programs that are being funded with with federal funds and so there's this sort of how to how to do that how to get back to these traditional teachings which really is is such an important part of of the whole picture that we we need to make sure is included and it's it's difficult
0: let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon, and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K dash X dot com, or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation.
1: And so how I know in Montana was it in it was in the last decade, right that and a woman had to go missing and was ultimately murdered to get
2: Congress's attention, right? But I believe that was two thousand thirteen here in in Montana, and I think that really sort of helped to spark an interest with our montana delegation and and the first time it really sort of got raised to that level
1: in terms of like the montana delegation starting to understand and articulate these issues has that resulted in significant change or is it more at this point still just about awareness
2: it's some of both and and i think that awareness really is a key part of that of you know convincing lawmakers that they that there is a gap and that something needs to be done and that they need to actually take real action, real action that includes the voices of families and survivors and includes the voices of tribal leaders and is not just a top-down kind of approach. That, and that's a lot of the kind of awareness that needs to be taking place right now is you, know, you can convince a group of policymakers in D.C. that they need to start paying attention to this issue but unless they're listening to the voices of those impacted, they're going to come up with an idea or a plan that doesn't necessarily work, that doesn't mm-hmm. respect the needs of community members, of families, of survivors for information, that doesn't respect the tribe's inherent sovereignty. And so that's a lot of the kind of awareness that, that needs to continue happening. You know, I'm not sure that we're seeing, and I'm not sure... You know, I think the data is is still lacking around this issue to really know if the work that's happened so far is actually having an impact. You know, I think that with more awareness, we're learning about more cases that might not necessarily have been something that we would have known about. And so we're seeing more cases. I really don't know whether we're, you know, it's actually doing a whole lot to, reduce the numbers, I would hope that there are, you know, with every tragic case that happens that we're able to do more to raise awareness of the problems with the response that exists right now and how that needs to to happen. And, and the heartbreaking part of it is that, you know, it, it requires the these families to have to, you know, be at the forefront of fighting for justice. And that process is just, you know, heartbreaking, traumatic, you know, these are real families dealing with, you know, the the loss of a loved one. And mm-hmm. they're in this position of having to sort of fight for, for their voices to be heard. But, you know, to some extent, that's how we have to create change.
1: Right. No, and it's it's clearly just sort of in the same cycle of re-traumatization that the cycle that, that has to be broken. I do sort of optimistically, and maybe this is naive, but I guess we talked at the beginning of this conversation about slow progress, but the fact that mascots are finally going away, that people are starting to understand or face sort of the proposition under which this country was founded and, you know, the hundreds of years of slavery that it was founded on and sort of these first crimes that we, you know, I can, as a white person, like we, not to speak for the collective, but like haven't really wanted to look at or face or acknowledge that hopefully, like with that awareness that people start to look a little bit deeper to understand what's going on. And, and, you know, to be fair, and this, this is not, not good, but when I've had this conversation about what's happening to native women with people, the immediate assumption is, oh, it's because most rape is interracial, right? It's like, oh, well, that's just happening. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's, it's, Primarily white people, like that seems to blow people's minds. But at least, at least people are having these conversations. It feels like they're having these conversations. And do you feel optimistic or just tired?
2: <laughs> Probably. I mean, it, it's a it's like this sort of inner war inside myself of optimism <laughs> and just exhaustion at the same yeah. time. You know, and and right now just with COVID exhaustion and and you know it's yeah. it's. It is. it's just such a, a critical time though i i think that you know we really are you know more and more people are having you know having this conversation as you said i think more young people are starting to sort of look at this as you know it's not you know yes i you know i'm i'm not myself you know didn't didn't do these things but i have to understand that you know that I might be in a position of benefiting from these things that happened in the past and they're starting to recognize that this just larger, growing social justice movement in the United States is, is so encouraging. Some of the the backlash that we're seeing because of it is, you know, at the same time is just mind-blowing and frustrating and, and angering at the same time, but, you know, it's, it's it. it it's that there's this reckoning that as a country we have to do and, you know, and, and, and Native people, you know, and, and the, the things that we have been subjected to through colonization and ongoing federal policies that impact us to this day, you have to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, it's exhausting work. You know, there's times that it's just, you know, you just have to force yourself to try and find the positive in each setback. And be willing to celebrate the wins, no matter how small that that happen. But know that you know that it just gives you enough gumption to sort of push forward through for the next fight. And it's that I think I mentioned this at the beginning. It's you know it's that resilience. I think that Native people have you know after everything you know the, all of these attempts. At genocide, whether it was actual physical genocide or just cultural attacks, you know, we're still here. We've been able to adapt in so many different ways. And the resilience that that we have is something that's going to to see us through.
1: For those um, of us who want to, obviously, we mentioned Sarah Deere's book, but are there other books, movies, documentaries that you wish sort of everyone who wants to help would watch to sort of get an understanding of this issue, but just also of native culture, and are there any? Is there anyone who's really gotten it right?
2: I, I will give a, a plug to the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. We have yeah. a restoration magazine that is—you can subscribe to it on our website, and it's four issues a year. And you can also download copies of it at no cost on the website. And we cover current issues affecting violence against Native women in the United States on a regular basis. And so anyone that's wanting to kind of know what's happening now, what are actions that are happening, what are things that they can do, that's a great resource. We also have a, a book that we developed, and i am you can hear me kind of scrambling here I'm reaching for it in my bookcase <laughs> it's called the safety for native women vawa and american indian tribes and it's a book that we produced that really goes through the history of the violence against women act and the violence against native women movement specifically that really puts i think a lot of a lot of the issues that we're facing a lot of the issues that we're trying to organize around both at the local level and when it comes to federal policy changes that need to happen, it puts a lot of that into perspective as well. And so that's a, a great resource. And I think it's also on our website under our resources to, to be ordered.
1: Amazing, and also obviously, hey, donations in lieu of holiday gifts sounds right. like a great idea.
2: Right, that's always uh, a, welcome, a welcome thing for us.
1: Well, Lucy, thank you for your time. Thank you for your work. And I will be following along, as I know many others will, as well in this fight for restorative justice. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Lucy Rain Simpson. For more on Lucy and her work, head to niwrc.org that's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.